everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, hey, if you're wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, follow, whatever the thing is that you need to do. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. Whatever you can do will help us. Again, we're content creators, and this, this is how you support us so by all means please if you feel so inclined do so uh all that said today's episode is uh, a pretty fun episode because i got to bring a very very old friend of mine and 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 he and i have never been super close it's not like he's like my best friend or anything though i do love him to death i would love to be uh closer friends with him we just have not really hung out that much but our paths have crossed so many times i've known him essentially my entire life um this is jonathan newby uh, he was in a band called Brazil, and uh, that's that's his most notable band, but he also did a lot for the music community where I grew up in Muncie, Indiana, and uh, he was in several other bands, and he does a lot of solo projects and things like that, and so, uh, yeah, Jonathan Newby is an awesome dude, but he's also a guy that introduced me to certain movies uh, whenever my band was practicing at the same place that his band practiced, so we'd usually go in right after them. And I would talk to him for a bit, and we'd talk about movies. And uh, yeah, he recommended certain movies that we'll talk about here in this interview. Uh, so I brought him on because one, I knew he was a movie fan, uh, but two, also he just has an interesting like history with music, and I thought it'd be interesting to share with all of you. So that said, let's go see what Jonathan Newby is up to. All right, everybody, I'm here with Jonathan Newby. Jonathan, say hello. Hello. How are you? I am doing wonderfully. Uh, Jonathan is uh, here with us. I've actually, Jonathan, I've known you for like my entire life, I feel like. Yeah. Because, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, because uh, we, we met at my grandfather's church, actually. Um, yeah. Like just our parents went there. And as children, you follow your parents. So we were just there. Um, but we've crossed paths. Like our paths have kind of like. Uh, weaved in and out uh, occasionally and largely mm. through music. Yep. And um, for anyone who doesn't know Jonathan Newby, he was in uh, a band called Brazil, which I would say is probably the biggest project you had in terms of of uh, kind of a notable yeah. act that kind of reached uh, yeah. a, a cast a pretty wide net, I should say. I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree yeah. with that. Yeah. But 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 I remember it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, Kevin is kind of popular on TikTok now. Right. Yeah. And um one time he had a live <laughs> and uh I I just posted on cuz I saw him pop up and I recognized him. I I couldn't quite put it together that it was yeah. that Kevin. But I was like he looks so familiar. And finally yeah. I put it together and I went to my car when I was driving, my old car when I had a CD player in it. And I put the catharsis and the humdrum record in because I still have that CD, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so then I'm like, I'm like, dude, I gotta ask this guy something. So I sent him a message, no reply, which I don't. I mean, he has like a million followers or whatever. So sure, yeah. Like no, no, no worries. But then he had a live. He was just going live, and uh, I asked a question in chat. I was like, Are you the dude from catharsis and the humdrum? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he read respond? it out loud, and he just he just looked so confused, and he's just like. That was like I was in that band in like college, like twenty years ago, and then he just like moved on. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really funny. So if you if you want to check out uh, Kevin on TikTok, uh, here here's my one degree of separation uh, from Kevin. So tell me yeah. a little bit about like when you when you wanted to start playing music because as for as long as I remember knowing you. You yeah. were in um like what was the uh what was the band you were in with like Tommy Jet and stuff? It was like a, a little hardcore band or something. Yeah, Ruby um, Debris. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I remember like <laughs> that's the first rec or not record, but band I remember just being like, Whoa, like yeah. people are playing music. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um did you have a song called like Johnny's Got His Gun or something like that? <laughs> it was, no, it was uh, cl- it was very close. Uh, Charlie got Chuck. Charlie got Chuck. That's right. We used to <laughs> sing that all the time too. Um, so anyways, like, but where did the, where did that start? Like, I, I know your parents are musicians, but like, where yeah. did your musical, uh, whatever, you know, like, yeah, when did that man. start? It, I mean, it's hard to put a date on it. Cause you're right. Like, I, you know, I come from this family, this sort of musical, uh, lineage, I guess my parents have always played music, whether it's like, you know, in, in church or whatever, like in, you know, jazz bands and stuff, my grandparents and all my aunts and uncles have played music in some sort of fashion. So it's something that was just like always there. And like, I don't know, I, you know, my earliest memories, and this is going to sound really cliche, but like my earliest memories is sitting by one of those like big giant console stereos that people always had. Um, just like listening to, I remember Chuck Mangione feels so good was the first song I ever remember, like kind of having a, like a, yeah, I like this sort of thing. And then, I don't know, I spun the chipmunks Christmas, like a million times. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of always been like in my DNA, I guess. Yeah. And so what was, what was your official first band though? Not like, not cause correct me if I'm wrong. Catharsis in the humdrum was your first like serious project like you were really playing i think you guys toured but like where did it begin though what was it was it hubie debris or however you pronounce that i always i always (laughs) mess it up every time (laughs) yeah that was probably it was probably the first band where it was like you know we were serious we you know made a demo we wanted to go out and play shows um really wanted to get signed which is what bands did at the time (laughs) and um back when you you could just play music and then meet someone and go like can you sign me and they might (laughs) yeah yeah and they might actually give you a little money yeah 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 some (laughs) development and all kinds of stuff yeah yeah very different very different time yeah but like so but how did that transition to uh like catharsis because you were in uh catharsis in the humdrum and that's the first time i remember because you played drums in these by the way so in brazil you were the vocalist but yeah. you played drums in uh how do you say that again who who <laughs> so we call we said hubri debris but if you actually hubris like debris. look at the yeah. word it's a portmanteau of the word hubris and debris so technically yes. it's hubris debris but yeah we just called it hubri debris yeah hubris. i don't know why I don't know why I can't say this word. That's probably why you didn't go anywhere. You know, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, but like uh, you have uh, with catharsis, though, like this was this. How, how did how did you meet these guys? Was it just a college thing? Like, were, were you yeah. all in college and you met and you're like, let's just jam? Yeah, pretty much. It was just that typical like collegiate scene cross pollination. Like we had friends and then friends of friends who then became our regular friends and stuff like that. And we all kind of like gravitated towards music and bands and things like that. Um, And 
yeah, you know, you know how bands are, they, you know, they kind of run their course and then you like have new interests that pop up. And so you join this other band, it's nothing like the first band and just, you know, it was just kind of one of those things, very typical, you know, band hopping experience, I guess. Yeah. And this was a, they, you guys were a three piece, right? It's Matt Miller and Kevin Thornton and you, right? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, we, I think at one point we were a four piece very, very briefly. Um, but yeah, we were a three piece essentially. And where did the band go? Like, I know you put out you put out the the record that's blue. I don't remember what it's called. It might just be a self-titled, but like there's like a, a blue cover. But yes. Yeah. Well, so uh, the first one that we did was uh, Girl Takes Mercury after All Night Party in parentheses. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we went down to Nashville to record that. It was a friend of Kevin's. And that was probably... <clears throat> I can't speak for any of the other guys, but for me, that was like my first real studio, like recording experience with nice mics yeah. and a guy who knew what he was doing. And uh, we're in Nashville and all this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, like that was, you know, we were trying to like break out of our boring college Muncie existence and like, you know, fast track to the the radio, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, then after that, we kind of, we, we would go through these series where we would kind of like break up for a bit and then get back together and break up. And then each sort of cycle, we would do a, a different recording. Like we did death of Kamarov, which was a kind of a real lo-fi EP, probably my favorite. Funny enough, the uh, headset that Jonathan was using malfunctioned. So we went ahead and put an edit here. Um, <laughs> so you're going to hear a distinct change in audio quality, but let's get back to it. So uh, death of Kamarov is probably my favorite. It's, pretty rough and, and, and dirty in terms of production values, but it's got a lot of cool things and experiments going on that we didn't do with Girl Takes Mercury. All right. Sorry. I was writing down my edit point. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry but about that. Dude, they just powered no. down. I guess I should have let them. Uh, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, but so with, with that though, with, uh, with these records, where are these? Have you guys intentionally suppressed them? Like, <laughs> like do these not exist anymore? Because I, like, I haven't been able to find anything. I found like one. I can't even find any of Kevin's stuff, like his solo Thornton stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's it's crazy. But where are these records? Because I only remember one. That's a good question. I mean, I have a couple in my closet. I, I think Matt Miller has a couple boxes of Girl Takes Mercury. <laughs> you nice. might have to ask him. Yeah. Death of Komarov is like the quintessential, like, uh, proverbial lost EP. Like, I have one and I might have burnt it for myself. And I don't know where any of the other ones are. That was kind of a sell it out of your backpack sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and then we had one more that was released on um, a small label run by my friend Chris Lawhorn. Uh, the label is called Idols of the Marketplace. And it was kind of like um, we re-recorded some of the older stuff and then had a few newer songs on it. So it was kind of like uh, a mix of like new and old. Um, and that's probably out there somewhere. You might be able to go on Amazon and find it from some obscure little retailer or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was a fun band because I'm sure you have to remember Stevie Ray's House of Wax. That's of just not a place you forget. Yeah. Um, but for everybody that doesn't know what this is, there was this incredibly small little record shop that was on the second floor, which is the worst for musicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was also there was also a partial wall that cut it in half even smaller. Yep. So then talk about a, a glorified walk in closet. I mean, you'd have a band in the area where they would play, you know, yeah. 
um, and all of the record shelves would be pushed to the walls. Yep. And then you'd have like 10 people and it's full. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, it, but it was awesome. And I remember yeah. I saw you guys played there a lot. I feel like catharsis. We did. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that was I, I specifically. Good, yeah, because yeah, I feel like there were you may have put on the show or I don't remember if you played, but there were always these like mixed genre shows, too. Yeah. Like a randomly like Burn It Down played there. But I remember the band before him didn't sound anything like them. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But speaking of which, actually, though, I forgot about this until just now, though. Something I think very, very fondly on thinking back is the Circus Music Festival you used to do. It's a C-I-R-C-V-S, yeah. just to be Ooh, cool. Gotta have that quirky um, spelling, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I'm learning that, though, with, like, if you make a band name or you do anything. Yeah. I mean, I don't want that kind of, like, quirky spelling, but it's like, you gotta do something because every fucking name is taken. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's, like, almost impossible to come up with anything original that's not super lame. Yeah. Uh, or you have to get super creative and think outside the box and have everyone ask you, what's this mean? And you go, I just needed a name. Yeah. Like, I needed to just get started. Or it's like, um, you see all those, like, laptop glitch pop artists that their name is just a bunch of, like, wingdings or, like, Cyrillic characters, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 That's what you have to do. You, you can't do it any other way. Yeah. Uh, but but so tell me about the festivals, though, because you you for my generation, which I'm like, I don't know how much younger I am than you. Six years, something like that. It's not that long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm 37. So whatever that is, you can do the math. Yeah. So like my generation of people thought you were a fucking legend in, <laughs> in Muncie because of this festival, because you brought all of our favorite bands. Right. Oh, so nice. you brought like embodiment one time, because, yeah. again, everyone who listens to this has heard me talk about all of these like, quote unquote, like Christian hardcore metal bands or whatever that I grew up listening to. Yeah. So, I mean, you had Living Sacrifice, which I was at that one. And you had Zayo and like all these killer bands. But you also had like Burn It Down and Harakuri and you know what I mean? Like yeah. all of these uh, crazy bands. Oh, oh dude. You, the year that you did the YWCA and Docs, where you had like the multiple yeah. locations, yeah. Further Seems Forever played there. With Chris Caraba, yeah. With Chris Caraba. This is before the moon is down. This is yep. when they had a split with Recess Theory. So all you nerds yeah. out there, um, this is what we're talking about. Uh, Chris Caraba, of course, mostly famous on the wide scale from Dashboard Confessional for anyone who doesn't know Further Seems Forever, though I think Further Seems Forever is far superior. Though I do like Dashboard, I'm just saying <laughs> Further Seems Forever is great. That's fair. Um, That's fair. And, uh, but man, I remember watching them play. And someone told me before we went there, they were like, dude, all the members but the singer from Strongarm. Oh, yeah. And Strongarm yeah. was like one of my favorites. They were good. So when I watched them and I was like watching for the scenes forever and I was front like my chest against the stage <laughs> and they're like throwing down like a hardcore band, but they're playing this like really pretty like indie rock music yeah. or whatever. You know? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it yeah. was that fucking awesome. But tell me about this whole experience. How did circus come in? Because I remember you even had little zines that yeah. had like pictures and you did your Fazoli's uh, <laughs> fundraisers like everybody those. did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's how I'm you so did it. Yeah, I have some breadsticks. Would you want to support independent music? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Well, it you know I I was I mentioned like with catharsis and the humdrum we would have kind of on and off again sort of periods and like when we had an off period I still was like trying to figure out ways to be involved really deeply with music and so I'm like, well, um, 
you know, I could bring bands that I really like into town and, you know, put on festivals and things like that, or put on a festival and things like that. And it was kind of, there was a little bit of a, a, like a selfish motive in that sometimes it was during a catharsis on cycle. And it was a way for me to kind of like have us open for bands that I liked (laughs) (laughs) because the first half of that, there was a lot of hardcore and punk, but the first half was always by design, like much of indie rock and kind of like dream pop and stuff like that. So I would just slot us in there. And then the rest of the night would be just like fun metal stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, the first one was at leader bingo and a big bingo hall. Um, Do you remember the year? Oh, that's a good question. Because I I think 99 was when you had embodiment, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say that might have been 98 or 99 would have been that. Um, And then 2000, I believe, was the uh, Ross Center where you got that uh, in the park because you had that and another building. But the Ross Center was where you let local bands sign up. And my band at the time signed up. And we actually met some cool bands that were like on our... I totally yeah, yeah. forgot about the Ross Center sign-up thing. Yeah, yep, that's yep, cool. Yep. I'm glad you guys got to play that. Yeah, yep. yeah. So I, I guess I did four total. One was at Leader Bingo. That was kind of a big learning experience. And then the second one was the one with embodiment at the old. Um, it was like a YMCA building next to the downtown yeah. YMCA. I think they tore it down. Um, power kept going out. Coalesce played that one. That one was really dude. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I didn't get to go to that one though. Yeah, and so oh, all man. like a bunch of my friends went to it. And then they were like, dude, like embodiment was great. But I was a huge Training for Utopia fan. Yeah. And they were like, you think Training for Utopia is crazy. Listen to this. And they bought the <laughs> Coalesce record. Yeah. And they're just like, just ripping into it. And I'll never forget when Revolution, uh, I forget the uh, the song, the one that has the song like uh, what happens on the road always comes home or whatever. Okay. And they do all that like, um, like Sabbathy Zeppelin type oh, yeah. riffs, you know, like when they got really groovy and stuff. Yeah. All my friends were like going crazy. I hated that. I missed that. But continue. Oh, I'm sorry. One. Yeah. No. Yeah. Then after that was the the third one, which was probably my favorite. That's the one that further seems forever played. Um, and that's the kind of the multi site one that I had. That one was super fun. And I remember funny story. Um, so further seems forever came to play. I had spent a bunch of time on the road with them roadieing for Juliana theory. They did this double bill. Oh, so yeah. I, I knew them like kind of coming into this. And uh, they had new merch and they had to have it shipped to Muncie. And I had him, I said, you can ship it to my dad's house. And so my dad would just bring it. And I remember like my dad was kind of late and for whatever reason. And I remember uh, Chris Caraba coming up to me kind of nervous. He's like, hey, uh, is your dad here yet? Has he got our merch? And <laughs> it was kind of a funny, just knowing how Dude. things all end up, him being super famous and, you know, my, yeah. my dad stressing him out. And then the Dude, fourth that's... one. <laughs> yeah. And then the fourth one, uh, that was at the the Ross center one. And I, that one was actually kind of like my, my retirement because I, I had a site, my previous site fall through. I can't remember where I was trying to have it, but I had, I had cave in booked. I had like a ton of bands, like different bands booked. And uh, I had to move the site and move the date because it just wasn't working out. And then when I got back to Matt Pike, who was booking for uh cave in and all that, like I lost all my headliners. Um, yeah. And, and I, and I got Zayo uh, again, they've actually played the first one, but I got Zayo back for this one and they always rock it. They're always so amazing. Um, and the circus fests were how I kind of developed that relationship with them. That is to this day, like, you know, I consider them good friends. So yeah, all was not lost. Yeah, dude. I remember being so jealous too, because your brother Nick was, would hang around like 
the youth group or like wherever I was at that point in my life. Yeah. And uh, he would always just be like, yeah, Zayo came over last night like <laughs> after that show that they played. You know what I mean? Or like <laughs> yeah. Living Sacrifice stayed with your parents or you know what I mean? Or like whatever yeah. the thing. And I was just like, God, which one was that? <laughs> like, yeah. I want to do that. And yeah. But it was like crazy because when I finally played with Zayo, like 2017, I think was the first time I ever did. Yeah. And I'd seen them loads of time when I was younger. And I just ne- I didn't even know they were still playing music. I just yeah. saw that that show was happening and I emailed the promoter and I was like, how do I get on this? And yeah. the promoter didn't even act like it was a big show, which yeah. may- now maybe that's just maybe people don't think as fondly of Zayo. I still do, though. Yeah. I still love awesome. that band. They're so good. Yeah, they're so good. And so like he was just like, yeah, you guys can play like that's fine. And I was like, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Like I made the I made flyers for I did everything because that was like a big deal. That was like my childhood coming to like fruition. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. as like a mid thirties. Yep. Yeah. But then I remember the second time we played with them, which I think you came to the first show, but the second time we played with them, I'll never forget Russ like stopped me as I was walking by him and he goes, Austin? Yeah. And that meant the world to me that he remembered who I was. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. now they have like these like softest, cushiest place in my heart, that band. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. they like they just were so cool. Like they were just yeah. so cool to me. You know what I'm saying? Like and I don't mean like they were cool. I mean yeah. like they were so nice to me. They were they yeah. remembered me. That it seemed like they cared that they were playing. Oh yeah, I, those guys are so awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Specifically, Russ. He's one of the most like the warmest, most personable people that that I've met. You know, like band or you know anything else. So yeah, not surprised. Yeah, I gotta have him either. on here too. Oh, have you? Because no, I I have oh, to. I, I need to. He's a big movie fan. Yeah. I know. We so we talked about it outside the Emerson Theater when we played together, and yeah. we started geeking out about movies and stuff and I, man yeah. i gotta have that guy on i've asked him before he's like yeah dude but then we just never set a date i gotta like get him on here <laughs> yeah so um all of that to say uh you do the circus these were like freaking awesome did did was it feels like that's something by the time you got like later was that like a like a money sink to some extent oh it was always a money sink i never made any money on that i was like was in the red like uh you know for you know, I did, it wasn't like life savings type money, but definitely hurt for a few months. Um, but I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I think probably the thing that like kind of made me want to retire is just, uh, you know, it's like for a month, like I was just stressed all, all the time, just trying to keep yeah. it all together. And it's just, it's tough being, you know, doing a, a big festival. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the same. I would have done the same thing. I'm that guy where yeah. I'll just, I'll just pay for everything. Just let me just do it because I want this to happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so I get that. Uh, so then, after you do the circus stuff, after you do catharsis, yeah, um, I lose touch with you. Kind of, you're doing whatever you're doing, yeah. And then out of nowhere, I'm in a band called Ghost of Maine. I remember. I'm playing with some friends. We practiced at uh, Aaron Neely's mom's <laughs> yeah. house. Yeah, and I, we show up, and Aaron's like, uh, "Can you guys wait? Like Brazil's finishing up." And I was like. <laughs> wait the same brazil like that brazil and he's like yeah yeah they practice here and then i walked in like there you are so then our paths cross again yeah. this is probably seven years later, or five years later or something you know what i mean yeah and and so how did brazil even start because i remember the drummer you ended up having for a long stint of the time yeah. i think he came from like 
New York or something. Like he came from yeah. away and he moved to play. How did this even start? How did you bring people in from another state like to play in your band? <laughs> and how did you like make it? If you get what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it was just a lot of like kind of dogged perseverance. Um, like by the time I wanted to like do another serious band, um, I had done like promoting, like, you know, being, being a promoter, I had been a roadie for other bands. I had worked at small labels and stuff like that. And I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm a musician at art. I just want to do, I just want to be the band and not be like the support around the band for once. And so I put together this, um, band It started with my brother and I, and we, uh, added, um, Aaron and Aaron Smith. And, and over time, um, just kind of had this somewhat rotating cast of members. Um, I started off on drums with that band actually. Um, and probably for the first year was the drummer. Um, and then we couldn't really get the singing situation, right. There was just some kind of like differences of opinion and stuff with like kind of the vocal direction. I ended up kind of auditioning myself on like a four track and just kind of seeing if the rest of the guys liked it. And, um, it wasn't the best singing, but it was, it was enough to like kind of secure my spot, I guess. So then the problem became like, we, we need to get a drummer. And then from that point on, that was around when we were like sending our demo everywhere. I, I played drums on the demo and sang on the demo, like Phil Collins style. And we <laughs> sent it out like a full on like blast. Like I remember going to the little downtown Muncie um, post office with this huge stack of just mailers full of burnt CDs and stuff like that. And just sent them out. We got one rejection letter, a bunch of like, just no responses. And then fearless records called us up. Like um, it gave me a phone call uh, at some point, like, and said, Hey, we kind of like what you guys are doing. And, and we just started a conversation from there. And then from that point, it was like, okay, we have the singer thing figured out. Now we need to figure out the drummer situation. Wait, 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 wait. Have you guys even played shows yet? We we had, yeah. We had done. Okay. Yeah, done I was about to say, you just start on this label. What world are we living in? That's what I was yeah. thinking. Sorry, I'm, but, I love sorry, go a ahead. big chunk of that. Yeah, we, I mean, we no, did that's the full okay. one. Yeah, we did the full one, um, you know, just like, hey, can we play in your garage with the nine other hardcore bands that are already playing and, you know, give us a, you know, like playing for Taco Bell money and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. So continue. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, but so a lot of that stuff, a lot of playing in like empty clubs and empty, you know, uh, just weird buildings and stuff like that. Um, and then we got signed um, and then we kind of had this big, long uh, issue of rotating drummers. We couldn't get it was either like they were really good, but they couldn't commit or they were not the greatest, but they were super like ready to go. And yeah, we ended up. um by the time we were uh, writing music for A Hostage in the Meaning of Life, which was our first full length, um, yeah. we had put out this call, like, because we had this platform now, Fearless Records, and they helped us like, hey, Brazil, one of our bands is like looking for a drummer. And we had this big series of auditions. And this guy from New Jersey sent me an email named James Sefcek. And he's like, hey, I'm interested in, uh, in, in auditioning. And we're like, yeah, just, you know, if you can drive out here, then you know, we'll, we'll, you can stay at, you know, one of our houses and then audition. And he came out and he had that, you know, obviously if he drove out here, he had the drive, you know, the motivation. Literally, and then when he no played, he had that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I literally, and then when he played, he had that, just that finesse that I had been looking for. And I'm a drummer myself. And I'm like, that's what we need right there. You know, he wasn't Isn't like the a, hardest when you're a drummer yeah. and you, you have to listen to drummers and you're like, <laughs> God, like just I know. do it better, you know? I, yeah. And I feel bad about some of like, in hindsight, I feel bad about some of the drummers who had auditioned because I know that I was just like 
so like looking, you know, probably glaring at them in some fashion. And so this is a blanket apology to any drummer who auditioned for Brazil. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, funny enough, the band that I used to practice in the same place, Ghost of Maine, our drummer was great, but, uh, and he could do metal, like metal proper stuff, blast beats and all that stuff better than me, hands down. But when it came to any kind of like hardcore beats or anything, I had that guy's number. And we would we would like I would sometimes give my input. They'd write a riff and I'm like, dude, you need that to pat, to pat, to pat, to pat, yeah. like you need that kind of a beat. Yeah. And he would try and he could not do it. And I would take the sticks from him and I would just do it. And so, again, uh, apology to Adam. If you're yeah. listening, I'm sorry that I was that guy. I would ask and he would begrudgingly give them to me. And then yeah. I'd be like, this is how you do it. And then I would like play. Yeah. And it's like, but it's that way because it's so frustrating when you're yeah. like, I can do this. Why can't you do this? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I know if I were sitting in the drum seat, I would just be like, just leave me alone. I'm the drummer. You yeah. know? Yeah. 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 Same. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks, man. But so you guys, you guys, you finally get your drummer. Yeah. And what was the lineup at that point? Uh, yeah. So the beginning of that era, it was me and my brother, Nick, um, Aaron Smith, uh, one guitar player. Um, Eric Johnson, the other guitar player, uh, and then James Sefcheck, and then um, Benjamin Hunt, who was our bass player. Yeah, so it was that's a good right, mix. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a good mix of like we all we all had these really unique sort of musical differences and backgrounds. It wasn't just like oh, we're just a bunch of you know indie rock guys that all go to the same shows. It was like you know. Aaron was into the like Fugazi, like uh, Discord stuff. Eric was into the Chicago Steve Albini bands. My brother was into like Kelly Clarkson. Um, (laughs) 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 You know, it was all around. (laughs) That's so funny. Dude, yeah, Eric's actually a distant cousin of mine. And I remember finding that out whenever you guys were, when we were practicing at the same building, because my grandma was like, because my grandma would talk to like your mom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it would just like be this whole thing. She'd be like, your cousin's playing with Jonathan or whatever. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, So that's the (laughs) weird thing. But so so you guys are just like practicing in some like random building in Muncie and you're preparing to tour and go off. Where where did where did Brazil go from there? You know what I mean? Because, of course, you used to play like the tally at Ball State, which was like a room they used to do. I used to see you guys there. Yeah. Uh, You would bring in bands sometimes and play or you'd be uh, you'd start tours or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, But yeah, like what like what happened? I mean, I know you guys were on Warp Tour at one point, which is kind of a huge deal. Like, how did it all go? Well, so that the, the hostage in the meaning of life and like the the beginning of playing with James Sefcheck was kind of like the new era of Brazil. Like it was kind of after Da Sign, which is the first EP, we'd kind of like been we toured we toured with this rotating cavalcade of like drummers that would play one tour and then not play, and we have to get another one and scramble and whatever. And and we, you know, we did some we did some decent touring and shows and things like that, but when that sort of like ran its course, we were like, okay, that might've been it. That's kind of sad. Um, but we started writing for hostage and meaning of life. We, we demoed with my, with Matt Miller, actually in Nashville, he was going to recording school there. So we were his project. Um, and, uh, we got, um, I'm trying to think how it went. Um, 
we ended up getting the same manager, like attracting the same manager as like Cody and Cambria. And prior oh, to them, nice. he was, yeah, he was prior to them. He was managing like at the drive-in. Um, so we kind of had this. It was like, also on Fearless, I believe, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden things started like realigning um, that album, like started, you know, we recorded that in LA with this guy, Alex Newport, who recorded at the drive-in as well. Um, and once that was released, it just like, it, I mean, you know, it got a lot of really great reviews. And from that, uh, it was just kind of like, we just toured and toured and toured. We were like, it was this onslaught of just being on the road. Um, we started off, we kicked off with three weeks with Coheed and Cambria. Um, and then after that was like a, a week or two with Sparta. So X, you know, at the drive-in guys and just, yep. You know, that, that summer I met Sparta, actually. I, oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. I, they stayed with me. Oh, I lived in Texas for a short stint, and we had Sparta come in and play. Oh, nice. And they actually stayed with us. Uh, they're really <laughs> nice guys. And, yeah. And uh, what, remind me what their vocalist name was, the dude that was from uh, at the drive-in. I want to say Jim. Was it Jim? I don't remember. Uh, well, the funny thing I, is, I feel is, bad because I, it's like it might it's like Jim Ford or you know it's like yeah, some yeah. like like name like that I can't remember. <laughs> but he was adamant about sleeping on the hardwood floor. Like he's just like I want to live the yeah. tour life. Yeah, they're like you can like sleep on the couch. And he's like no no I'm cool. <laughs> and he just like set up like a sleeping bag and just like yeah. was in a corner. Yeah, oh, he's a funny. nice guy. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say so. Yeah, on that tour with them, actually, we played at CBGB's in New York, and afterward. Um, we went to some bar that they knew about. It was called Motor City. I don't know if it's still around, but it was some divey, you know, hipster bar or whatever. And we just started talking about touring and stuff like that. And I said that, you know, like I was from Muncie and he was like, oh, I remember being in at the drive-in and playing Stevie Ray's House of Wax, bringing it back around to What that. in the hell? Yeah. And so we talked about that and they, they basically like, they didn't have any money because they were just broke touring and they would drive up and down McGalliard for a couple of days and they parked and slept in, in the Sunshine Cafe parking lot. And we're just like, vibing on all this history it was really cool oh my god that rules <laughs> dude how do can you imagine at the drive-in at stevie ray's how are all those records not broken i know right you know what i'm saying yeah 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 <laughs> and i think i'm not sure but i'm i'm pretty sure that eric johnson ran sound for the at the drive-in show at stevie ray's that's it's just it like a, first, it's guys. an that's interconnected crazy. like matrix so, so two things real quick. I'm going to go in order though here. Yeah. So w when you recorded uh, the hostage and the meaning of life, what was it like having your dad on the record? Because I know he did the, like the wild sax stuff at the end of one of the later <laughs> tracks. Yeah. And your dad is like a kick ass sax player. Like this dude rules. Thank you. So like, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Yeah. He's always been just in my, you know, I'm not just saying cause he's my dad, but I've always like respected his musicianship. Yeah. But what was that like, though, having him play on it? Like, they, were you just like, Dad, we want some wild sacks. Can you come give us some wild sacks? Yeah, well, he um, so he we'd collaborated with him before. That wasn't the only song that we ever had. Like we wanted like some sort of crazy John Zorn type like sax on. Like we had done some other things and we had happened to have the song Metropole uh, be on the record. And um that was back when you could convince a label to fly a guest artist out from Indiana to spend a few days in the studio and fly them back. So that's what we did. And actually it was kind of a proud moment for me, you know, like being, uh, you know, like a, at the time, a professional, <laughs> but yeah. broke museum, uh, musician. 
and, you know, being able to like fly, fly my dad out to do a session and stuff like that. It was kind of, you know, maybe, maybe a bit of a brag for him, you know, hey, I'm going to fly out to LA and do a session, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, why wouldn't it be? I mean, you've been busting your ass for a decade at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're just like playing in one band. It only gets so far. You play in another band, you get the tour, it goes a little further, yeah. fizzles out. And now you're in a band that has the clout. Yeah. To be able to be like, fly my dad out so we can play this one riff, <laughs> yeah. like this one wild yeah. thing. I think that's fucking awesome, dude. Yeah, and it was it was a nice, um, you know, a nice sort of father son experience, I guess. And you know, I think today, if that situation were to arise, you know, it would most likely be met with, no, they can record here and just upload it to the cloud, and they can pull that session down and. <laughs> You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's dude. Yeah, with with barricades, the hardcore band I was in last, um, we did that with guest vocalists. Like they would just yeah. record, send us the track. They would already have. Ma- they're like, this is as long as I can master my vocals how I want them to be. Yeah, cool. So then they would have it all. You just plug and play. Like yeah. that's all it was. Yeah, that's how uh, when music we is made. Some. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> I'm sure that's how. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. So the last thing with Brazil that I can think to ask is is about like the Warp Tour thing. Now, yeah. Warp Tour was like so huge at that point, and you guys were—I mean, there were so many bands. Yeah, like like a hundred bands playing on this thing. Yeah. And so, like, what was that experience like? You guys ran a whole like a line of shows with that, right? Yeah, we did uh, two weeks. Um, on the West coast and then a break and then two weeks on the East coast. So it was, it was a pretty brutal run. Um, we were on the smart punk stage, which was kind of one of those, like, um, you know, one of the side stages or like Ernie ball and stuff like that. And we played with this band melee, um, which I don't know if they're still around, but if you watch, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, they have one of their stickers in the bar. So that's awesome. That recently. <laughs> um, and from first to last, whose singer, uh, went on to become Skrillex, um, so yeah, we played that. Um, and there's the whole, uh, one of the sort of running, I don't know if it's a joke or just sort of maxims, I guess, of warp tour is that it breaks up bands and vans and, um, like melee, for instance, they didn't break up cause of warp tour, but like they were on all what six weeks of it in a van. And, the thing about work tour is that you have to leave right after it's done and you have to be there before the gates open. Like if you play at like seven o'clock in the evening, you can't roll in at six. Like you have to be there at 10 AM when everybody else is getting there and the stages are get, getting set up, which means that if you don't have a driver or roadie or something like that, like you're driving your ass everywhere overnight. And these are like bus tour routes. So like we, you got to get from Kansas city to, Billings, Montana in the next 12 hours. And so it's just brutal driving for bands and bands. Um, But it was, I mean, you know, for us, it was like a very, it was a slog, but it was fun. We got a lot of of new fans. Um, Some places were better than others. Some places we had 15 people watching us. Some places we had like a huge, massive crowd looking out. Um, So it was definitely like, I don't know if I could do it again especially not at my age, yeah. but you know, like it's, I look back on it fondly. It was a good summer. Yeah. Although I will say, yeah, like that was also the summer that my son was born. Um, so that was, you know, I, I made some decisions in terms of like when I was coming back and when I was leaving to go on the next leg that to this day, I'm kind of like, maybe I should have stayed home a little longer, like that kind of thing. But yeah. I mean, you know, retrospect 2020, right? Like (laughs) at the time you're thinking of things, you're trying to figure it out. 
Yeah. And uh, golly, I can't believe he's that old. I know that's the most cliche thing <laughs> to say at that point, but he has yeah. to be nearing 18. He graduates something. this year in like a month. He'll that's be graduating so from high school. Stupid. <laughs> I wish him the best. Um. So, yeah. So you, you do. Uh, Brazil is like the, the, the crowning achievement up to this point. And then you you did some stuff afterwards. You did something called Jonathan Christmas. I remember that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and uh, other things. Uh, are you doing anything now? Or is um, I know that you've worked with Russ from Zayo, where he's played drums for some of your stuff. Yeah. Um, and things like that. Like, what's going on now? Uh, yeah. So um, I have a sort of a like a studio project called JC Autobody, and it's kind of a way for me to play around with personas and things like that. And it's basically this it's everything that Brazil wasn't. It's super simple, super, super primal, noisy, gritty rock, um, no, almost like noise rock, um, kind of blues influenced, I guess. Um, that, I, you know, funnily enough, like I, I've kind of gotten into the publishing side on that and have actually um, been able to, I'll just say, um, kind of outfit my studio with some of the proceeds, um, having had some of those songs in shows like Riverdale and Shameless and stuff like that. Nice. Um, so yeah, it's it's been kind of nice to be able to kind of self-perpetuate the music. Um, but yeah, that's one among a bunch of different projects. I'm kind of at a point in my life where it's like, I just want to try on a bunch of different hats. And, you know, like I, I my music taste has like spanned so many different like genres. And it's like, I just want to have a made up project that is shoegaze, for instance, and a made up project that is like, you know, uh, just grindy, crusty punk and then, you know, whatever, whatever I want, because I've got a studio. Yeah, <laughs> Dude, you're speaking my language right now because I have a whole list of band names that I've had to fish out just yeah. for studio. All of them are like dedicated to like a genre. Yeah, there you I'm go. that That's nerd. Exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 Where it's like, all right, cool. I have this like. Uh, classic like proper screamo band. All right, yeah. cool. That band's gonna be called this, you know. And it, even when I'm like, if I'm reading something or I'm watching movies or I'm doing something, if I hear anything that catches my attention, I'll write it down yeah. and see if I can rework it into a band name or something. Yeah. Like I always just keep a list because, as we talked about earlier, it's it's so hard to find one that works. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like that's not already taken or that's not too close to something. Yeah. Uh, but then I'll hear some, then I'll go back and look at the list and be like, where did I even come up with this? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, where was this? Yeah. So anyways, um, yeah, that that's fun, man. So going back a little bit, whenever you, when we were practicing at the same location in Muncie in like 2005, uh, <clears throat> that's whenever, by that point, I was two years into my love of, of film. Uh, my, my love started in 2003, mainly where I, I watched Amelie. And that just like completely blew my mind because yeah. all I was used to was like Dumb and Dumber and The Rock, you know. So it's like <laughs> and nothing against those. It's just if you've seen all those movies, you know, there's a big difference. I just never seen anything like it. Yeah. And so then my buddy Riley was like, dude, you got to you got to watch French New Wave stuff. And then <laughs> Kurosawa came into my life. You know what I mean? I just start like I just deep dove for those two years. Yeah. And I remember you told me about a movie called a little old movie called Metropolis from <laughs> the 1920s, <laughs> which is like incredible. So I like immediately looked that up and I got it from like the library or so I can't remember uh, or Netflix or something. Movies, yeah. yeah. And so anyways, uh, yeah, dude, uh, I never knew you were like that huge of a movie fan on the Brazil website. If I'm not mistaken, you had a message board. 
back when message yeah. boards were were prominent. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there was a whole like general section for like movies or something. I just remember like people would talk about movies, and you had this like fucked up thumbnail, dude. <laughs> it was like like <laughs> some super pale white dude with like this big pink mane or something. And he just has like blood coming out of his mouth or something. I don't know. I just remember it haunted me. And at one point I found the movie, but now I can't remember it anymore. But like uh, I, that's like where I learned that you were a big movie fan. And I'm just curious if you can tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into liking movies. And uh, I, well, we'll just start there. We'll start. Yeah. There. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if there's a defining moment uh, or a thing where that happened or a movie I saw where it's like, yes, I'm, I'm suddenly into movies. Um, I just have always been sort of a. Um, an escapist type person. In fact, there's a Brazil song called Escape. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I just, I've always been kind of attracted to that sort of like two hour emotional mental trip that a movie offers um, to take you somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, and kind of just on top of that, this idea that like, I don't really if I find something that interests me, I will like chase it down into like the furthest rabbit holes. Yeah. I never got to a point where I was like, um, yeah, I need to like know all the directors and who was the key grip of this and this cinematographer and stuff like that. Like, I think you were probably light years beyond me in, in film now, but like, um, but I do have, I've, I've always had an appreciation for um, the, the sort of this, the escapism that that film brings. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think it was 2009. I'm put, I'm, I'm not usually this good with dates. Okay. (laughs) Like, with like times, but I I remember where I was in this time, which puts it in a certain year. Um, But I remember in 2009, uh, you came over to my house. We hadn't hung out. I don't think probably ever one-on-one, but I invited you to come over to watch a movie. We watched David Lynch's Inland Empire. I remember that. You remember this. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and so you're a david lynch fan clearly yeah, i think yeah. that because that was you specifically chose that when i was like i have these uh, movies and you were like oh yeah i want to see that that would be awesome yeah. what 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 do you what gravit what what b- pulls you in what connects with you with like a david lynch movie because that's a weird one for a lot of people lynch uh, yeah. is either a love or hate i feel like for a lot yeah. of people yeah Uh, Well, let me just say first, um, and I didn't realize this until just now. I do remember going over to your house to watch that film. I didn't remember it was Inland Empire, but there is an uh, an indie cinema that opened up in my neighborhood. Today, they are having a matinee of Inland Empire, and I just bought tickets for it. Isn't that weird? (laughs) That is awesome, though. Yeah, there you go. Full circle. Yeah. Because this is like, uh, what what year is this? 2022. What would that? I don't. Oh, I was going to say maybe there was an anniversary of some sort, but uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I think I, there might have been a restoration of that movie or something. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But cool. yeah, yeah. So um, I so David Lynch is was was a director and in, in that there are all kinds of theories about his movies and all kinds of like, you know, people doing deep dives on just like this, the symbology and stuff like that. The thing that has always attracted me to his work, whether it's Inland Empire or um, Lost Highway, which is kind of my kind of my definitive David Lynch movie, is that um, that was kind of the, my my introduction to him was kind of like my first realization that a movie narrative does not have to be linear. It doesn't even have to have like any story at all. It can be 
really just a like transmission of a, an ambiance or an atmosphere or a slate of feelings. Um, and just kind of the dreamlike quality of his movies where, you know, certain characters like, you know, suddenly they morph into these other characters and it's like you're not watching the same movie and stuff. That's a very dreamlike state to me that happens in my dreams all the time. And it feels yep. very like familiar and eerie. And it's something that is like I've always connected to and it's something that's drawn me to his film. So I wanted to see Inland Empire because at, at that time in that year, that was the new one that came out. Um, and you know, he of course nailed it. Yeah. I mean, dude, that's, I, I can't think of, and I actually have yet to see lost highway Lynch and I have an interesting history. I'll talk okay. about that in a second, <laughs> but, um, it's a good one now, but it wasn't always just when I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> I want to talk about it now, but I'm going to finish what I, my thought here. Uh, so inland empire from what I've seen, at least that was just the most nightmarish movie. Yeah, <laughs> I'd ever seen. You have to tell me after you see it again tonight if it still feels that way. Because yeah. there's a point where um, I'm pretty sure. Uh, why can't I, why can't I think of the the lead actress's name? Laura um, Dern. Thank you. God, I had I had Linda in my head. And I'm like, that's not it. That is not it. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, Laura Dern. There's a point where like I don't know. He like magnifies like someone's With a balloon head. Yeah, it's like weird. Like I don't even know how he does some of this stuff. It yeah. like hurts my heart to like watch it because yeah. it's like, Oh, like this is so yeah. uh, weird. Dreamlike is a great way. Um, especially when you watch something like his, uh, earliest film, uh, Eraserhead, yeah. like that is just a dream. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, how could that not be? That's just yeah. such a unique experience. And uh, with being someone who loves Stanley Kubrick so much and movies like the shining and all of those, I love that when Kubrick was on the set, he made his like crew watch, eraser head and he was like oh, i want to make that feeling you know what i mean like that's <laughs> yeah. one of the, so it's like to an extent with kubrick being my favorite filmmaker of all time i have like a soft spot in my heart for lynch for that right yeah but my history with lynch is so weird because uh i watched maholland drive with my buddy riley and i thought the acting was terrible i thought <laughs> it looked boring and yeah. i thought it made no sense and it pissed me off right now yeah. this is Whenever that came out, 2002 or whenever. This is yeah. even before I was like into movies, probably. Yeah. So I watched it and I remember like whenever you open the book or like the little booklet or whatever that comes in the DVD and yeah. actually had like explanations and like things to look for like in the movie. And it's yeah. like, come yeah. on, man, which <laughs> I know he did that with like Dune. Yeah. Like in the theaters, you would get a thing that you had to like read. And you uh, know, okay. I, like I know that that's like how he is. Yeah. But like after that, I had seen. Um, the Elephant Man, which was my favorite. I and I, oh, it still yeah. is, but it's like a default. Like I need to rewatch it and revisit some of these. Um, yeah. but I, I had I watched that. I loved it. Um, I even watched a Straight Story, which is like his just yeah. G-rated Disney movie, basically. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually kind of awesome, you know. Yeah. So yeah. like I I, I kind of started to build and Dune, of course, uh, which I thought was like bad in a great way at the time. I have not revisited it, so it's you know what I mean. Like it was one of those things, and that was me at that time. And then years later, you know, we watch Inland Empire, probably around that time. I oh, no, years later, actually, even I watched Blue Velvet for the first time. Mm. Really loved that. Yeah. Um, and I, I basically picked up several more. I watched all of uh, Twin Peaks and the film Firewalk with me. Yeah. And so I kind of like have a new appreciation for him now. Yeah. Uh, just as a really unique and creative filmmaker. 
Yeah. Um, but I did miss out on a very like a, a sliver of his career, like Wild at Heart, Lost oh, yeah. Highway, like those movies that came out right around that time. Yeah, uh, I missed. But he is a really unique soul. I have to he say, is, yeah. And he, I mean, he does have a very uh, specific and kind of consistent um, visual language. Like you'll usually in his movies see some sort of like fire um, or curtains. Um, and one thing that he does is I've noticed is a lot of times he hides these sort of visual Easter eggs. Like there'll be a, a normal scene happening in front and then way in the back, there's some person with like a really messed up face or something like that. It's, it's just yeah. like, and you kind of gravitate towards that. And you're like, what is going on in the background? You know? Um, yeah. and y- yeah, but the sound just, design too. Yeah. His yeah, sound yeah. design's whack, dude. It really is. Like, it, it, it creates an atmosphere, whether he wants it to be unsettling, even in the straight story. I mean, you know, that's like you said, it's a G rated, almost Disney flick, if not actually a Disney movie. Yeah. There's one scene in there where it's just this outside shot of like one of the guy's shacks or houses. And it's just this kind of creepy looking door and it holds on to it for just a slightly uncomfortable amount of time. And then there's some sort <laughs> yeah. of like, you know, sound of typical David Lynch, like hissing sound or something like that. And it's just this moment, one moment in the entire movie where you're just like, Oh, I just got a Lynch, like shiver, you know? <laughs> yeah. 100%. And it, and it was a Disney movie. Oh, was which it? is what's okay. crazy. Cause like yeah. Disney put it out. Yeah. Who does that? <laughs> With David Lynch, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you look like our material. We'll get, make a G-rated movie. He's like, okay, yeah. I, I don't know how that came to be, but um, that makes me like want to look up like history on it or whatever. But <laughs> he's just one of those guys that at that time when I first started getting into movies, I could not appreciate those things because I appreciated very surface level things. Yeah, and now I like. I just want those cerebral experiences because I find them yeah. so much richer. Yeah. Have Did you by chance see the movie that's on Netflix? It was up for an award uh, at the Academy Awards called The Power of the Dog. Yes. Yeah. I fucking love this movie. Okay. That's a good one. And yeah. that's, a, that's a great example of um, a movie where everything that's happening is subtext. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like everything on the surface is very clear and you can watch it. And I could see people watching and just being like, why are we doing this? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, why are they standing in the desert and like hugging? And then he like starts to cry, you know, like, I don't know. It's not like a hard movie to follow at all. But I love like so much of the rich storytelling is in that subtext. Yeah. um, About, uh, you know, whether it's Phil, the uh, Cumberbatch character or whoever. So I I do want to jump back, though. So. Something I like to ask a lot of the guests that come on here is uh, about some movies that essentially informed the way that they uh, watch movies now. Kind of the lens in which we see movies. There are always those movies that kind of like build that lens, right? Yeah. And as you watch new stuff, um, you know, Metropolis, for example, or The Passion of Joan of Arc, another silent film, like those have influenced just my forever lens because. There's something about the storytelling, about the way effects were used, or about close-ups, or whatever the thing is. Do you, by chance, have any movies that kind of come to mind that are just, like, really big staples in kind of your film history? Yeah, and, I mean, unfortunately, they're not... I mean, I wish I could be somebody who's like, yes, this uh, Truffaut, Truffaut film, you know, no. 60s or whatever. You know, no, but tell us it's The Little Mermaid, dude. I don't give yeah. a fuck. I just want you to like what you like. 
So you just tell it's, us. It's usually the bigger, more accessible movies that get you to that point. You know, you see something and it kind of funnels you down into suddenly. One hundred percent. Yeah. So for me, that's where I'll start. Um, I think. Um, all right. So I'm just going to lay it out there, full honesty. Return of the Jedi. Um, I was too young to see the first Star Wars in um, the theaters. Uh, I vaguely remember seeing Empire Strikes Back in the theater, but um, Return of the Jedi was a phenomenon. And for me, it was my first, like, like uh, I don't know, like total full immersion into another world. And it was this space cowboy world. There were weird uh, languages and dialects. There was just this beautiful score with John Williams, um, feel good moments, like tense moments. There was father son tension, all that stuff. And I, you know, it was like, you know, you're, I was not like, I'm not going to say how young I was, but like, um, you know, all these things that you haven't learned how to put words to is just kind of like playing out on the screen. Um, and I think that that movie like really kind of opened up like how a, a film can be just such an escape you know, it can be an entirely new world for you. So that kind of set a, a pretty gold standard for me. That whole era of like that golden era, Spielberg, George Lucas, Indiana Jones, all that stuff. I roll that into the same ball, but I think probably like the flagship would be Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it, the flagship, because Lucas was uh, we've talked we've done a whole episode on the start the original trilogy and um, he was an incredible like world builder, man. Yeah. Like think of just like. Like you, not every movie can you watch and actually have um, such a rich history where you could build franchises off of them. Like, like yeah. you could force franchises on something. Yeah. But like, even something like I'm even going to go as far as like Harry Potter. Now you have these like Fantastic Beasts movies, but all of them are based within the same reality, with the same physics, and within the same universe. Yeah. as those Harry Potter books, because there's so much to work with. Yeah. There is a lived in world. Right. Yep. And the same thing goes with Lucas and, and those like I personally, I hate the prequels like yeah. episode one yeah. through three or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but like at least they do still have lived in worlds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like they're like Lucas still wrote the thing and there is like. Yeah. Some level yeah. of world building, even though, like, I really hate those movies. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I appreciate that part of it, though. Like, Lucas yeah. is somebody that could build a damn world. And and for it to be the blow-off movie, Return of the Jedi, yeah. like, because the first two, you know, were setting up to that adventure, basically. Yeah, like, Because yeah, yeah. if you watch all three of them, that one stands out. That one is bigger. Yeah. It is livelier. It is, you know, much more action-adventure. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. fuck, man, I think that's a great choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I there was just so much attention to a lot of things that I feel like sci-fi and a lot of like the hard sci-fi or whatever you want to call it of the day didn't really pay attention to, like the lived-in universe, as you called it, the kind of like the spaceships are dirty and the technology looks used and things like that. Battlestar Galactica, yeah. Star Trek, everything was brand new all the time. Um, you yeah. know, the, the language they clearly had a maid come onto those sets, you know, what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They took, they took them to the repair shop often. Um, and you know, like, you know, and in those other ones, other universes, you know, if, if someone was an alien or a different type of life form, their face was blue and they spoke perfect English, but in the star Wars world and the return of the Jedi world, um, you had these people who spoke, you know, like jub jub language, whatever you want to call it. Just like they sounded like they could be from, I don't know, rural Mongolia or like, 
you know, Japan or Russia or something. They sound like they could be real languages in real places, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's great, man. What else though? Like what, what are some, what are some other ones? Do you have any other titles? I'm happy to dig into eighties pop <laughs> movies too. So I don't care. Yeah. Well, I, I will touch just a, a little bit again on the lost highway, just because like, again, that's kind of one of my, um, one of my funnels into the idea that, you know, a movie doesn't have to be a narrative beginning, middle, end. It can be simply convey uh, a feeling and emotion. It can simply be unsettling. And that led me to appreciate films like Enter the Void, um, you know, where it's just like, the, the, you know, there's the, the sense of time is removed and it's all yeah. about like, you know, you're just on this trip. Um, and I'd have to say um, another one would be like maybe Requiem for a Dream. And that one I appreciated because it kind of showed me that like, um, how creative you can be on a budget like that. Yeah. That was kind of, I don't say, I don't want to say it was my first indie ish film or whatever, but um, it definitely, you can tell that there is a small budget for it, but the acting performances and the quality of the story like transcends all that. And then the icing on the cake is the Clint Mansell soundtrack, which I'm a huge Clint Mansell fan. And for the, the main reason that he, you know, he's not John Williams. He's, he's a pop, you know, like alternative pop guy who got into scoring and, you know, his stuff is so simple that whatever. And it's instantly recognizable. Everybody knows that knows what it's from and knows it's real setting up a real sad scene. Um, Even, you know, like the other stuff, I think he wrote for moon um, and the fountain just, I, you know, he's got this, there's this thing about it the way he writes it's very simple but it's very emotive and i think that combined with it's a similar thing with the films that he writes for they're very simple they're very i don't want to say under budgeted but they're very powerful despite all that yeah did you uh by chance uh when you were hanging around living sacrifice and stuff like in early 2000s did you know matthew putman was he involved whenever you knew them i think so yeah i actually know him from esocaris Oh, great. Well, then, yeah. So I had Matt on here, right? And I go okay. way back, like, to Esso Karras years. Yeah. And one thing he said to me, and I'm going to I'm gonna extend this to you now, uh, is he was like, yeah, all of my picks you'll, no- you'll notice are all movies that have music that connected with me, right? Oh, yeah. And he was talking about how, like, music is actually somehow, like, a huge gateway into, like, the movies he loves. Yeah. Like, if it's, like, the soundtracks or the scores of those can often make or break those movies. Are, do you tend to gravitate toward uh, like those soundtrack? Like, will that elevate a movie for you? Even if the movie, you know, maybe it's like, it's pretty good, but then it's like, yeah. dude, that score though, this movie's amazing. Yeah, it <laughs> like, where does yeah. it, where does it influence? Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely like put it over the top. I remember, you remember when that uh, zombie flick 28 days later or whatever, the yeah. first one of that, not the whole franchise. They had that um, Godspeed, you Black Emperor song, Hastings, I think the Hastings mm-hmm. Street or something like that. Um, that was like, it was so odd, but it was so perfect for the the scenes that it was supporting. Um, and just That's just kind of an example, but like kind of to your question, like, um, yeah, I absolutely connect more, uh, more intense with movies that have, um, and especially that have soundtracks that are kind of adventurous and things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be. And I'm trying to think there, I, I know there are some movies where it's just like, well, they do this a lot in a lot of TV shows now where it's like, uh, they'll throw in some, you know, uh, I don't know, folk song over the scene that is like, 
really weird juxtaposition, but somehow it works. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I, I, music is great. Music, music is an intensifier for sure. Uh, how do you feel about speaking of the power of the dog, which you brought up before, or yeah. many of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, um, uh, like uh, let's say the master or there will be blood. How do you feel about Johnny Greenwood? Have you listened to much of his stuff? The uh, Radiohead guitarist doing those scores. Yeah, I have um, not as much. Uh, I haven't followed his career as closely as like Clint Mansell, but um, yeah, Johnny Greenwood is, very talented, I think. Um, and the things I've heard, like his more recent soundtracks that'll like maybe come up on Spotify or something like that. Um, he's definitely got sort of a, almost like a natural film scoring, um, knack. It sounds like, um, you know, like Clint has got this sort of like, you can tell that he is, was originally a rock guy, but with Johnny Greenwood, it's like, it, it feels like he kind of understands the way a classical, a uh, film composer, not classical, like classic music, but just kind of yeah, yeah, a yeah. traditional film composer would compose for a film just, you know, in the chord yeah. progressions he uses and things like that. Dude, go. I'm, I'm no fucking joke, dude. Go listen to There Will Be Blood and then listen to the soundtrack for The Power of the Dog right after it. OK, the, okay. Now, he's done other scores. Those two, I think, are comparable to an extent. And then, okay. you know, of course, he did the Phantom Thread, which is much more kind of classical quartet type stuff. And, yeah. you know, he 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 kind of branches out a bit. Okay. But dude, I'm telling you, <laughs> those two, like, I, I if I'm working on something, I'll listen to scores sometimes. But those two, I would, like, just play often. Those two yeah. scores. Yeah. I'd be curious to because they're so interesting. I, they, I can't, like, I, they can't lose my attention. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, there's always these like little things going, all this percussive uh, noise with you know all of these sliding strings and yeah, and, uh, you know I don't know. He's just dude. That that dude is my favorite guy right now. You know, <laughs> has been <laughs> yeah, for a few years too. Which yeah. of course, Radiohead, my favorite record of all time is OK Computer. So it's like yeah, of course I'm going to love him uh, just because I like the way that he thinks. But yeah, uh, but man, I just feel like. That really made Power of the Dog for me as well. Anyways, so um, so you talked about uh, uh, Lost Highway, and we talked a little bit about how that kind of helped you appreciate movies like Enter the Void, yeah. which is also another uh, notable picture. Uh, and you mentioned Requiem for a Dream. Yep. Uh, do you like other Aronofsky stuff? Are you a fan of like The Fountain and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, I am a... The Fountain holds a very deep place in my heart for a variety of reasons. Um, the soundtrack I will listen to and get choked up every single time. Um, my, you know, Aaron Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, fish. Uh, shout fish, out to yeah. fish. <laughs> uh, one day, several years ago, he just, we were hanging out and he's like, man, have you seen the fountain? And I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, you got to see it. It's really good. And so I think I found it at the library. Fish was kind of like my, uh, he was kind of like the guy that would kind of impart this film wisdom. He was kind of a little bit beyond me in terms of things like that. Um, the, the, the proverbial record sharer, like, check this out, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was with the fountain and I remember watching it and just having this incredible emotional experience. Um, and that's another movie that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit more linear than say a David Lynch film, but they play with time in an interesting way where it's three, three timelines going at the same time. Um, but the music back to the music with like a Clint Mansell uh, partnering with Mogwai um, 
you know, just making, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to like describe and put in words other than to say I had a, a really intense emotional experience watching it. Dude, that, well, that's how I feel about, this is why I love Darren Aronofsky because Requiem for a Dream, which I need to go back and rewatch. It's been too long since I've seen it. Same. But um, I remember it very fondly. I actually remember, uh, I think it's Damon, no, one of the Wayans. I forget which Wayans is in that movie, but the one that's in it, uh, I remember him running. And of course, he has like a, a oh, the, um, the, the chest camera or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, like a harness. And it yeah. has the camera on it. I had never seen that before. Now, of course, yeah. it had been done, but I'd never seen it before. And like, what a great effect. You know yeah. what I mean? And then just the, the, all of those little montage moments of the eyes, like the people's dilating and just all of these great things mixed with that. score. I mean, that score is incredible. I agree with you. Like, it, I still hear it, even if I don't remember the scenes it's from. Yeah. yeah. Um, but even like the mother, you know, kind of descending into madness with these pills and watching these like random uh like qvc type uh yeah <laughs> like shows you know and yeah things like that i mean that's that's great but i even like pie the movie he did before you know oh, yeah, he of course did one, yeah. he did yeah he did the fountain uh which we talked about but uh i one of my favorites of his just because of the emotional resonance it has with me is the wrestler which is a very straightforward movie for oh, him Oh man that one is so good isn't oh, it so good one. yeah i, I think that, that might one. Yeah, that might be my favorite of his, yeah. which is crazy because it's not by far not the most complex. It yeah. is very straightforward. Yeah. But fuck, dude, it is so good. Yeah. Let me tell you why I connected to it. Um, you know, it's got this narrative where you've got this person who had his moment, you know, Madison Square Gardens. And yep. now he, he's time has passed. And, you know, he he's still in that moment, you know, and but his life is kind of not there anymore. And I, I, when I watched that, like I had like my glory days with Brazil had just passed and I was just like feeling it, man. Like I was like, I know what this dude is going through. You know, we never played Madison square gardens, but (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what I mean? It's just like, uh, yeah, (laughs) dude. I, yeah. I mean, when I saw that movie, I didn't get back into wrestling yet. I had some friends that brought me back into wrestling, but I did have a history with wrestling. I grew up loving and watching wrestling. I remember. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was about to say you. Pr- I was literally about to say you probably remember this from church because I used to like <laughs> yell things out. Um, <laughs> Body slam. Yeah. <laughs> no, it'd be like grandpa's talking about Samson and he would he'd say like, yeah, he's like Hulk Hogan for those of you. And I'd be like, Rick Flair. Like I would just like <laughs> yell like wrestlers names, um, but I was a huge wrestling fan. So like watching that and having watched documentaries and knowing a lot about the business, even though I wasn't really involved in it uh, in 2008, I think is when that came out. Yeah, um, it was it was crazy, man, uh, because that is the life. But then also I had also quit the band that I was in. Um, and by the time that movie came out, I had already been in another band and that one fell through. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in a similar way where it was like, I feel like I'm, I already did the thing. I don't know if I'm ever going to have this opportunity again. Yeah. Um, there, there's something that is like easy to connect with, with yeah. that movie. But like on the flip side though, several years later, he makes mother. Did I'm you see mother? Uh-uh. Holy shit, Jonathan. <laughs> this is uh this is like, no joke. This is uh, like if Aronofsky did a David Lynch movie. 
I need you know to watch it. Yeah, like okay. that is that is definitely uh, especially with um, both of our histories with the church. I mean, the whole movie is essentially this allegory. Uh, basically, uh, if the characters represented like Mother Nature and one represented God, yeah, how do these how do these correlate? You know what I mean? Like how do these things work? Um, but it's all, of course, that's not explicitly said. But it's just this interesting kind of subtextual thing. You got to watch this. Talk about a nightmare. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> Everything changes in this movie the whole time. Yeah. I don't wow. know. You, I, I demand that you send me a message after you watch this movie. <laughs> All you got to do is say, I liked it or I hated this. I don't care what your thing is. Yeah. I, I got to know how I, you feel I, about I, this It's on movie. my list. I'm sold. Yeah. But uh, are there any others, though? I mean, so we've kind of talked about Aronofsky. We talked about The Wrestler. We talked about Requiem for a Dream. We talked about Lynch. We talked about these big 80s pop movies, uh, like kind of headlined by... Yeah. Star Wars. Any any others that you have in mind? I mean, I guess I would, you know, <laughs> Wizard of Oz is a good one just because that that was almost like framing my childhood in a way. It was just always the movie that you put on um, in, you know, the, the parents put on when, uh, you know, you, you needed to kind of like kill some time and they needed to go off and do something. It was kind of, I guess that was kind of a world building sort of thing. That's kind of a... sure. I feel like it's kind of a <laughs> lame example, but there was, no, a, there was actually, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, no, it's not at all. I mean, <laughs> uh, you're, you're spot on. It is a world building thing, especially as a kid yeah. watching that. Like you're watching like tornadoes. It's yeah. fantasy. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I loved fantasy as a kid. I don't know if you were there, but like, Oh yeah. As yeah. a kid, like fantasy was my jam. And so yeah. watching things that had for me at the time, such emotional, uh, s- uh, such an emotional spectrum. Yeah. Like the never ending story, for example. I was which just is like, you say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like things like that, where like when Atreyu loses his horse in the fucking mud swamp, that <laughs> traumatized me. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like that yeah. was like a rough thing. But then you also had that's sad. And then you have the fear of this like black wolf basically chasing him. But yeah. then you have yeah. these other moments that are kind of like these glorious, like uplifting moments, especially yeah. with the kid who's just sitting in his school's attic like yeah experiencing what i'm experiencing yeah i thought it was great and no yeah actually there was there was this uh, i don't know i categorize it in my head as sort of like this sort of dark fantasy era in early to mid 80s um like young young person film and neverending story is in there i watched that countless times with friends at sleepovers and stuff like that the explorers dark crystal last unicorn to me like they all they're all kind of this weirdly dark um but fantastical like film experience and there's something in my mind that kind of connects them all in that they're not you know it's not like a care bears sort of thing they're just there's just uh i don't know i, I don't know what it is it's just kind of a almost like a, a uh, not a sadness but it's just they're dark you know what i mean well yeah there i think i think the thing that i love about those that i i kind of um grieve them yeah, uh, because like those don't exist much anymore, at yeah, least in don't. America. Yeah. And and so what sucks is I feel like those movies really almost like respected the imagination of children yeah. and the emotional spectrum and the emotional identity that kids can have. Um, like, it's OK if they're sad. Yeah. And it's OK if they get scared as long as they know that, like, you know, like yeah. not like traumatized scared. But I mean, like, it's OK if they <laughs> feel fear because of this movie or yeah. they laugh with it or they see, 
you know, someone about like to be killed by these weird sphinx like statues, you know, like like whatever the thing is. (laughs) It's like uh, I just miss having movies like that. I mean, the Goonies, for example, was not really uh, it feels older than like a kid's movies by today's standard in terms of like the kids are like cussing and they're like running around, like hanging out, you know, and and uh, and doing weird stuff or even stand by me, which is even a bit more of a mature version. Um, But like those movies, I know people who were older than me because I was born in 85. So, I mean, I was super young when these came out, if even alive. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I saw them years later and I like watched them. I'm like, man, like that's way closer to what like living life as a person that age was like yeah. minus like you know your brother finding a dead body or something you know like <laughs> not that specific but just the way they interact the yeah. way they talk the way they talk shit to each other the way yeah. they cuss whenever they know they'd get in trouble by their parents you know what i mean like all of those little things i i just like miss that yeah because i feel like a lot of it gets so like neutralized right and, and there's room for both yeah. like these kind of neutralized versions and these realistic ones but i had this guy on um i don't know why i'm spacing his name right now uh jeff rhoda that's his name and he made this movie about like teenagers right yeah and uh i'm trying to remember what it was called i feel really bad that i can't remember this i need to like look this dude up because i need to give him a shout out uh jeff rhoda is an awesome dude um uh, 18 to party that's what it is okay and uh it came out last year um uh, or Yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyways, and uh, so it's basically like these people hanging outside of this club and they're too young to get into the club. But there's a guy that works there. And if they can just hang out long enough, sometimes they'll let him in the back. Right. Yeah. But the whole movie is kind of like this dazed and confused type, like uh, all these different conversations kind of going on and some people having really serious conversations and. One of them yeah. might be talking about a kid that recently committed suicide in the school and how that affected them. And the other kids like just grow up, you know, like just all of these kind of things. One person kind of has a crush on another person's there. All the things are there. Right. Yeah. And I remember talking to Jeff about that and just thinking like, dude, I miss movies like this where we can just let them be like real representations of these people. Yeah. 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 You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was my long diatribe. <laughs> but anyways, um. Well, dude, yeah, this is this is good. I love this. How did how did you last question? How did you how did you even find Metropolis? If you're not like a film guy, <laughs> okay, yeah, because that seems like that seems like a real out out of left field. Because you told me about that movie, and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember either. But um, I, I think you know when I was like. I'm a big list person and I always, I will always, no matter what I'm involved with, I will look up like the top 10, the top 100 of all time, blah, blah, blah. Yes, and dude. when I, you know, when I was like way more into movies and uh, back, you know, I, I, I would always look up like, what are the, what are all the uh, best picture, you know, like uh, winning movies that I sh- should maybe want to see? What are the best historical movies of all time? You know, just stuff like that. And it was always there because, you know, Fritz Lang, it's just classic, you know, expressionist uh, early cinema. Um, and and, and I, I, I feel like that a lot of the early sort of Brazil concepts um, were kind of derived from that whole era, um, maybe lyrically. Uh, definitely Metropole is um, kind of harkens back to that you know, that sort of vibe. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, 
I think, yeah, it just turned up on a lot of lists and I watched it and I'm like, this is, this is kind of my thing and I should probably share it with Austin. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, I'm glad you did because I, I don't know how long it would have been for yeah. me to watch. I've since watched like loads of Fritz Lang stuff yeah. because I just think he's great. Yeah. Whether it's his German stuff or his American stuff, uh, it's always fun to watch. I mean, there are some stinkers. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. yeah, he's just he's just one of those phenomenal yeah. uh, talents, man. And for um, the time, the effects were amazing, dude. For like, the now, yeah, like yeah. I show I show moments where the woman is uh, essentially transformed in, and like her essence is transformed into the robot yeah that like you know essentially turns into uh, like an evil version of her yeah and like when the rings are kind of like going around her and stuff i like show people that now like restorations i have like a blu-ray back there yeah and uh, i show people that movie and i'm like how did they do this because this doesn't look like double exposure or any of like the classic things that looks way too crisp yeah it looks way too perfect yeah. And I can't figure out how it was done. Yeah. Well, and even sh- those um, those scenes, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I feel like they're like huge, massive crowd shots of people, almost like you would see in a, you know, like a Lord of the Rings movie yeah. where it's just like, you know, a huge valley full of orcs or something like that. But in this movie, it's it's like the working the the working subhuman class or whatever. And there's this, this miasma of people. And I remember seeing that and being like, that's, this doesn't feel like, you know, 1920s or whatever it was in the movie. It's insane. It's it is like the greatest. Uh, That's like (laughs) I can't wait to do a silent movie thing for the show because that'd definitely be on there. But anyways, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on, dude. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk about music and movies. That's always good. Yeah. And um, yeah, man. Hopefully, if there's ever a reason, like maybe after you watch Mother or something, okay. <laughs> we'll have to. Well, maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about Mother and maybe a David Lynch movie. We'll double feature it or something. Yeah. Because uh, I haven't seen Lost Highway. There it is. That's yeah. the double feature. I need to watch Lost Highway. You need to see Mother. We'll reconvene at a later date. How about that? That sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. See ya. All right, see ya. This is fun. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed Jonathan Newby. I really do uh, want him to watch Mother and then me watch Lost. uh, What is it? What did I just Lost Highway? And uh, I would love to do the double feature. That would be great. We could do that. I'd have him on. We'd talk about it some more. He's a really great dude. If you haven't listened to Brazil, go check him out. They're everywhere you want to hear him. They're there, you know, Um, especially the. the uh, huge record that was on uh, Fearless that is definitely on Spotify and, and you know you can find stuff on YouTube they had a music video all kinds of stuff but it was a pretty big deal and he's a pretty awesome dude and I'm just like really thankful that uh, you know after all of these years kind of uh, you know crossing paths and then our paths you know going different directions and uh, every time I reach out to this guy he always gets back to me he's always super willing to help uh, and, uh, you know, all I did was say, Hey man, I'd love to have on the podcast. I know that you're kind of a movie guy and, uh, you played music and I've had a lot of musicians on. It'd be really fun. He was just like, absolutely win. Like that was just kind of the conversation. So, uh, thank you very much, Jonathan Newby. Uh, like I said, go check out Brazil. Uh, they were just, they were just great fun. 
Um, <clears throat> this, uh, this whole month is going to be pretty interesting. I'll have different people on and we'll be doing a lot of fun stuff. So please, please, please keep up with all things medium cool. Um, and uh, I guess with that, just know that I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>